This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. In this series, we've taken a closer look, specifically over the past three weeks or so, of how postmodernism has influenced our culture. And so far, we have seen its effect on our culture's wholesale support of abortion and the views of marriage, gender, and sexuality. And so this evening, we're going to look at a third major influence of postmodernism as we discuss the topic, Render unto Caesar, Discerning Civic Responsibility and Civil Disobedience. I use that verse there, Render unto Caesar, and really it comes from Matthew chapter 23, verse 21, where Jesus was being questioned, and they asked him, should we pay tribute to Caesar? And of course, you remember the story, he took some money and he said, whose image do you see on it? And they said, Caesar, and he said, render under Caesar to things which are Caesar. And often we get to thinking, okay, that means I have to pay my taxes. Hey, it's coming up, right? In just a little over a month, we all get to pay your ta- our taxes. I pay them too. And then I'm glad you pay them because on the 15th and the end of the month, I like to feed my family. Uh, and so as a military person, I need you to pay your taxes. Uh, so, uh, uh, and I have to pay mine too. It's, a, it's an ongoing cycle. I give and I get. But we don't just pay taxes. There's a lot more we actually owe those in authority over us. And so this evening... We're not going to be able to exhaust this topic. In fact, if I had my way, we'd have an entire class on American government and how it works and the role of Christians in our government and in our country. Back in 2006, I did my doctoral dissertation on the, 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 uh, the church and state and really a return to a Judeo-Christian ethic of the, the church and state. And so this is really what I enjoy talking about. And so uh, it's, it's a fascinating topic. And, and over time, 2006, if I were to read my dissertation again, which I actually glanced at once, uh, I probably wouldn't enjoy reading it at all. And, I, and I've kind of, I don't want to say I've changed terribly in what I believe, but I think I, it's a little more nuanced now than even what it was when I was defending my dissertation. So we can't exhaust this topic, but I do hope to outline a few major principles and encourage you to continue to read on this topic. Now, I would like maybe, I was going hoping to provide some resources, but uh, that's not going to happen. I didn't get that far. And honestly, we'll see how far we get. We may actually have to conclude this next week. Uh, but in essence, the question before us this evening is this. Is there ever a time that I am justified or you are justified in disobeying my government? Is, that's the question we're going to ask tonight. Is there a time that I can disobey my government? Now, It seems like a fairly straightforward question, but there is nuances to it. In fact, it may actually be very different for some people in here than for others. We have here several of us who are active duty. And so I got to be very careful what I say if I were to say, oh, yeah, sure, we can disobey our government. I got to be careful. Some of you are retired. We saw just a little over a year ago what happened when people that were retired decided they wanted to disobey their government. We're not going to get into much about January 6th tonight uh, because I still think it's too fresh and uh, will offend too many people. 
And then there's those of you who may have been a spouse or are a spouse, or maybe you don't have an affiliation with government, and you're like, hey, anarchy, uh, why do we need it? Uh, and so, uh, so we have a variety in here this evening. Again, so it might seem a straightforward question, but I'm sure you all would, when I say, is there a time when I, should I can disobey my government? And you probably all think of responding in your mind, Yes, of course there is ultimately a time you can disobey your government when the government asks for you to sin against God. And you would find adequate support in the scriptures for that. Our minds all go to where? Acts chapter 5, verse 28, where the Bible says, we ought to obey who? God rather than man. men. Now, of course, this is Peter's answer. With the, another, with the other apostles, to Annas the high priest in Jerusalem when he told them, did we straightly command, this is what Annas the high priest said, did we straightly command that you should not teach in the name, that's Jesus, and behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man, that's again Jesus' blood, upon us. The whole saga of what brought Peter and the high priest to this conversation can be found in Acts, Acts chapters 3 through 5. It all began when Peter and John had gone up to the temple to pray. They came across a man who was lame. And though the man wanted alms, Peter and John shared with him the gospel and then miraculously healed him. Now you say, that sounds, story sounds very familiar. Well, if you were here on Sunday, you heard much of that story. Pastor has been preaching on this passage in his sermon series the book in the, called The Book of Acts, Gospel, Power, Global Impact. So I'm not going to go into much detail about the story right now. You've heard it. But let's suffice it to say that the preaching of Peter and John did not sit well with Jewish leaders. In fact, they were grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. It began when Peter and John began to point to Christ and they said, uh, hey, you can't do this anymore. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead and, and, kind of, and relay some of the things that I want to talk about later, but uh, I do want to, well, I'll get there in a minute. We'll, we'll, we'll just, this is the situation where John and Peter, they disobey. You see, the Bible is full of examples of men and women who disobeyed authority. Not only do they disobey, some are lauded as heroes for their disobedience. Some are even celebrated. Sure, they endured consequences, but we are not told that their disobedience was considered sinful. We're not told that. In fact, we are often led to believe that they suffered for righteousness' sake. But they did certainly disobey the God-ordained authority. For example, the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter 1, verse 17. The Bible says they feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved many the men children alive. And of course, the famous example of Rahab, who when the king of Jer Jericho came to her and asked her to... Her, her, asked her where the two spies that were sent by the children of Israel were. She said, there did men come to me. 
but I didn't know who they were or why they came. She then lied and said that they had already left and she didn't know which way they went. But if the king's men would hurry, they'd be able to find them. Meanwhile, they were on her roof. She lied about all this while the two spies were hiding. And not only did she lie, in Hebrews chapter 11, as a woman of faith who received those spies, it implied that she did this out of an act of faith. Then there's Esther, who after some prodding by her cousin Mordecai, is convinced it is her civic duty to go before King Ahasuerus even though doing so was a clear violation of the law because she had not been invited. Yet, she courageously determines after fasting three days, she really thought about this one, for three days and three nights she fasts. And then she says, and I love this passage of Scripture, she's talking to Mordecai, and she says, I will go in unto the king. And then it's as if, I need to remind you, Mordecai, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. And Esther was only following her cousin Mordecai's example, who had refused earlier in a couple chapters to bow to Haman in Esther 3, even though it was, as the Bible says, the king's commandment. As the story of Esther concludes, the king issues an ordinance that permits the entire nation of Israel to resist the king's original commandment. Talk about chaotic laws. You think we don't know what we're doing in passing laws. The king gave a commandment to destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women in one day, even upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. Then he passes the law and says, when that happens, because I can't change that law, when that happens, you have the right to fight back. So you have an ordinance to disobey an ordinance. In 1 Kings chapter 18, Obadiah, who is described as one who fears the Lord greatly, defies the monarch by hiding a hundred prophets in a cave to save them from Queen Jezebel. She had put out a decree to kill him. And he works in the, in the, in the uh, kingdom. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego they defied Nebuchadnezzar by refusing to bow to the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. They didn't just decline. They stuck out like sore thumbs, refusing to bow. And Daniel, he willfully disobeyed the law. The Bible says, now when Daniel knew that this writing was signed, he went up into his house, and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before God, as he did aforetime. This was premeditated disobedience. He knew exactly what the ordinance was, and he said, I'm going to pray. And what about Peter? He is ready to inaugurate the kingdom. Peter's a guy ready to go. He came to the Garden of the Gethsemane prepared. What did he come with? A sword. And he comes to the Lord's defense in the garden. He draws a sword, and he cuts off a guy's ear. Jesus miraculously puts the ear back. But Peter, he's never arrested for it. He's never punished for it. It's not until he was warming himself by a fire 
while Jesus was being questioned by Caiaphas, he's by this fire, and Malchus's, the guy who Peter cut his ear off, his cousin recognizes Peter. And he says, hey, weren't you in the garden? I think you'd know if your cousin's ear got chopped off, that someone had done that. Of course, Peter denies it. He denies it, and I find it funny that the cousin says nothing about Peter's attack on the servant. He just says, I see, I've, seen, I've seen you somewhere. But Peter denies everything. His issues are deeper spiritual ones than what seems an insignificant attempt at insurrection. And Paul. Paul is told in Acts 21 that if he goes to Jerusalem, he is going to be bound and sent to Rome. Why? Because Acts 21.28 tells us precisely the charge. Here's the thing that Peter or Paul was doing. In Acts 21.28 says, This is the man that teaches all men everywhere against the people. And here's what he did. He's teaching against the law. Now, it's easy for us to look back on, the old, on, the, uh, on Paul's the, uh, teaching and say, Well, Paul was right though. He, there's theological significance to Paul. But... I think we should also consider the civic disorder Paul was actually advocating. Whatever we might know of the Old Testament law and Jesus' fulfillment of that law, we cannot ignore the fact that Paul's preaching was certainly unlawful. The law wasn't just some good guide. This was the law, and it was used in the same way we use the law. These were the law of the land. He was not just breaking a Jewish code of conduct. He was breaking the law. His preaching was advocating disobedience to, can I use his own words, the powers that be. That's what Paul was doing. One final example. In the book of Revelation, we're told that the tribulation saints are going to be part of those who live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. But what do they have to do to attain such authority? Revelations 20 provides the graphic resume for those saints. John sees the soul of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. And why were they beheaded? Because they had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. This is not just a consequence of choice that they were allowed to make, be vaccinated or don't. This law will be that they have to worship the beast, and it's the law of the land that they must receive his mark. Revelation th chapter 13, verses 16 through 17 says, The beast causeth, that's an important word, it causeth, all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. I think we tend to whitewash things when we say, well, I need to be careful because if we start getting this, we're not going to be allowed to eat. It's not like what it's going to be then where it's the law that you do this, and if you don't, you pay with your life. So, what do we do with all these examples of disobedience to authority? 
More importantly, how do we reconcile them with the passages like Romans 13 that says, commands, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation, punishment. So on the one hand, you have this explicit command, but on the other hand, you have examples of the Hebrew midwives, Rahab, Esther, Mordecai, Obadiah, Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, Peter, Paul, the tribulation saints. So is there a contradiction here? Well, before we go further down that road, let me assure you that we will not go down that road. Because there is, I believe, a logical explanation to what might seem to us at first as contradictory. There's no contradiction. Let me stop here for a moment to ensure that we understand the ramifications of what we are talking about. In our list of examples, there's a variety of governments represented. We cannot think that we are only called to obey those governments that promote freedom and democracy. As you look at this list, we look, we can't, let's not get into this and say, well, they lived in bad times. I mean, that was just really rough. When Paul said that no power exists but those that are ordained of God, we have to consider when he was saying that. He was saying that even as the despot Nero, the emperor of Rome, he was saying those, he was writing those words, when he penned those words, he was saying that when Nero was the ordained power from God. That's a tough one. That's a challenge. Does God ordain sin? Well, no. But he sets people up and gives them power. We see it through the Bible. In fact, he hardened Pharaoh's heart. We see what he did to Nebuchadnezzar. I prayed tonight, and I say it again, the heart of the king is in his hand, and he turns it wherever he wants. The benevolent dictator, the totalitarian tyrant, the symbolic monarch who just is a state head, even the constitutional republic that we live in, these are all ordinances of God. Now, consider some of the powers that God has allowed to rule over humanity. We've got the democracy that allows the people to choose leadership, whose primary goal is to govern through fair representation and prevent abuses of power. And the result is a system that requires discourse, debate, and compromise to satisfy the broadest possible number of public interests, leading to majority rule. Democracies advocate for fair and free elections, civic participation, human rights protections, and law and order. In our list of governance that we'll see here, democracy doesn't sound so bad until you got a mob that is completely out of control. Then there's communism, a centralized form of government led by a single party that is often authoritarian in its rule. Inspired by German philosopher Karl Marx, communist states replaced private property and a profit-based economy with public ownership and communal control of economic production, such as labor, capital goods, and natural resources. Citizens are part of a classless society that distributes goods and services as needed. Everyone 
according to your ability, each according to their need. We all work as we can, but we all get what we need. Socialism. Socialism is a system that encourages cooperation rather than competition among citizens. Citizens communally own the means of production and distribution of goods and services while a centralized government manages it. Each person benefits from and contributes to the system according to their needs and ability. Communism is socialism. Not all socialism is communism. And then there's oligarchies. Oligarchies are governments in which a collection of individuals rule over a nation. A specific set of qualities such as wealth, heredity, and race are used to give a small group of people power. Oligarchies often have authoritative rulers in an absence of democratic practices or individual rights. An example of this would have been South Africa during apartheid. Then you have an aristocracy where a small elite ruling class or the aristocrats have power over those in lower socioeconomic strata. Members of the aristocracy are usually chosen based on their education, upbringing, and genetic or family history. Aristocracies often connect wealth and ethnicity with both the ability and right to rule. You want to see an aristocracy, you should, have, you should look at France during the time of the revolution, their revolution. When a monarchy is in power, there's a person appointed as head of state for life or until abdication. Authority traditionally passes down through a succession line related to one's bloodline and birth order with the ruling royal family, often limited by gender. There are two types of monarchies. There's the constitutional and absolute. Constitutional monarchies limit the monarch's power as outlined in a constitution, while absolute monarchies give a monarch unlimited power. England is an example of a monarchy, and it's been both in its history, absolute and constitutional. Currently constitutional with one of the longest reigning monarchs in Queen Elizabeth II. We even have theocracies today. A theocracy refers to a form of government in which a specific religious ideology determines the leadership, laws, and customs. In many instances, there is little to no distinction between scriptural laws and legal codes. Likewise, religious clergy will typically occupy leadership roles, sometimes including the highest office in the nation. Can you give me an example of a theocracy? The Taliban in Afghanistan, Iran. Most of the Muslim nations of the Middle East. It's why Turkey is known as a secular nation, because they reject the theocracy. Then there's colonialism. Colonialism is a form of government in which a nation extends its sovereignty over other territories. In other words, it involves the expansion of a nation's rule beyond its borders. Colonialism often leads to ruling over indigenous populations and exploiting resources. The colonizer typically installs its economy, culture, religious order, and government form to strengthen its authority. Spain is an excellent example of colonialism back in the 16th and 17th century. Similar to communism is a structure called totalitarianism. Totalitarianism is an authoritarian form of government in which the ruling party recognizes no limitations whatsoever on its power, including its citizens' lives or rights. A single figure often holds power and maintains authority through widespread surveillance, control over mass media, 
intimidating demonstrations of paramilitary police power and suppression of protests, activism, and political opposition. What's our best example of a totalitarian? China, but I would say North Korea. And then finally, you have military dictatorships. A military dictatorship is a nation ruled by a single authority with absolute power and no democratic process. The head of state typically comes into power in a time of upheavals, such as high unemployment rates, of, or civil, high unemployment rates or civil unrest. They usually lead the nation's armed forces, using it to establish their brand of law and order and suppress the people's rights. Dictators dismiss due process, civil liberties, or political freedoms. Dissent or political opposition can be dangerous or even deadly for the country's citizens. We've had several of these over the past year. Name any country in Africa, and it's most likely had a military coup. Right now, uh, over in Asia, uh, Myanmar is, is under a military dictatorship. Burkina Faso, we have a missionary there, just had a coup within the past couple months. So you have all these types of government. They're all around our world. For most of them, we were able to name a country. So my question is, the citizens that live in those countries, are they commanded in each of them to be under the authority of those government and to treat those powers as the, as the ordinance of God? That makes me very uncomfortable because I sit here in my padded pew, in my air condition, where I can come and go freely and I have all the freedom in the world and I can say, yeah, they need to obey their government. But does this mean there is never a cause for rebellion? Well, that's our question this evening. If we say dogmatically, no, there's never a cause for rebellion, then our entire nation might have been built on unbiblical and false pretense. Because we, uh, we rebelled. So much for a Christian nation if it was all built on a lie. But if we say yes, then we have to ask when and under what conditions and with what biblical objectivity should we, that resistance occur. So we're going to answer some of those questions in a few minutes. But for now, I will say that I do believe the colonies, let's go back to that for a second. I do believe our colonies had the right to declare its independence from the crown in 1776. And I want to share an example of what right rebellion might look like. Now, I don't think that that Declaration of Independence was a violation of Romans 13. Now, you might, after this, accuse me of spinning it. But I'll accuse myself of being a patriot. Uh, but let me, let me present my case, and you can judge for yourself. I'd encourage you to read what's called the Olive Branch Petition of 1775. The petition was written by John Dickinson a delegate from Pennsylvania who wanted nothing more than to stay loyal to the crown. He was a holdout. And he had convinced Congress to write this olive branch petition. So the Second Continental Congress adopted it on July 8th, 1775. We're talking almost one year prior to the Declaration of Independence. It was addressed to King George III, and really what this petition did, it served as an appeal for the redress of colonial grievances. 
The Virginia delegates who signed it were Patrick Henry, Richard Henry Lee, Edmund Pendleton, Benjamin Harrison, and Thomas Jefferson. You got a pretty good bunch here. The petition ended with these words, and this is very important. We are, this is what it said, we are convinced, your majesty, we are convinced your majesty would receive such satisfactory proofs of the disposition of the colonists towards their sovereign and parent state that the wished-for opportunity would soon be restored to them of evincing the sincerity of their professions. You say, what are they saying? It sums up like this. By every testimony of devotion becoming the most dutiful subjects and the most affectionate colonists, that your majesty may enjoy a long and prosperous reign, and that your descendants may govern your dominion with honor to themselves and happiness to their subjects, is our sincere prayer. What were they saying? Your majesty, you're mistreating us. But would you make it right because we want to be Englishmen. We want to be loyal to the crown. It's an important document in our history because it set the stage. So what happened with this document? It made its way all the way to England. And do you know what King George did with it? He didn't even read it. In fact, King George's response to this petition to address some grievances while at the same time pledging their devotion to the king, King George refused to even accept it or consider the Olive Branch petition that was sent by the Continental Congress. And secondly, while George III did not respond to the Olive Branch petition, instead he chose rather to react to the petition by declaring his own proclamation of rebellion. In the proclamation, the king declared the colonies in rebellion and essentially declared war on the colonies. And this is what he said. We have, through, we have thought fit, by and with the advice of our Privy Council, to issue our royal proclamation, hereby declaring that not only our officers, civil and military, are obliged to exert their utmost endeavors to suppress such rebellion and to bring the traitors to justice, but that all our subjects of this realm and the dominion thereunto belonging are bound by law to be aiding and assisting in the suppression of such rebellion. You know what the king was doing? He said, I absolve my allegiance to you. You are in rebellion. And if you'd have read the Olive Branch petition, it was saying, no, we're not. We are going by law to redress our grievances, and we, we want the king to listen to us. It's why there was a split in parliament over whether or not they should go to war with the colonists. Because there were some who had read William the Pitt the Younger. He had read the Olive Branch petition. He knew what the colonists were saying. This response by King George was a slap in the face to the colonists, who in their eyes had their allegiance severed by the crown. This is why I don't call it a revolution. It was a war for independence. They believed that they had independence when the crown retracted any protection it legally was supposed to provide its subjects. 
The Declaration of Independence would come as a response to this action by the crown. A year later, the colony said, okay, we declare our independence from you. It was responsive, not preemptive. We'll see this in more detail as we consider the question later of how should we disobey authority. Before we dive further, though, I think we need to define some terms. Now, so defining the terms is going to be helpful for us as we resist this temptation to be subjective. This entire course, I hope I've been gotten across that I don't like subjectivity. I don't, I like objectivity. We need to discern between when to obey and when to resist, and that discernment is very difficult. It's not always cut and dried, black and white. Principles may certainly be at stake. But what happens when your principles that you believe in affect someone else? For example, should my family, should my son Titus, who is almost two, should he suffer for the sake of my principles? That's a hard question to ask as a dad. I'm going to portray or betray my taste in movies. But there's a 2000 movie called The Patriot. And there's a scene where the fictional character, Benjamin Martin, is debating in the South Carolina Assembly on whether the colony of South Carolina should join the other colonies in declaring independence. The assemblymen are desperately trying to convince Benjamin Martin to join them in the cause. And the assemblymen, at one point in the debate, Benjamin Martin says this. I won't be able to say it like Mel Gibson, so I'll just say it. I have seven children. My wife is dead. Now who's going to care of them if I go to war? To which Colonel Burrell, Burrell responds, wars are not only fought by childless men. This is when Benjamin Martin makes his determination, granted. But mark my words, this war will be fought not on the frontier or on some distant battlefield, but amongst us, among our homes. Our children will learn of it with their own eyes, and the innocent will die with the rest of us. I will not fight. And because I will not fight, I will not cast a vote that will send others to fight in my stead. But Colonel Burwell, he knows Benjamin Martin. He knows his character. And so in a last effort to appeal to Martin's principles, he asks, and your principles? To this, a jaded Benjamin Martin responds, I'm a parent. I haven't got the luxury of principles. What is he saying? He's not saying that since becoming a parent, he lost all principle. Rather, he, and I know this is a fictional movie, but what he's saying is that as a parent, he still has principles, but now has to consider the ramifications those principles now have on his children. When I was young and single and 9-11 happened, I was ready to go to war. Every deployment is a nightmare now because <laughs> you don't want to leave family. It's okay when you're single, but when my children and my wife now are, are, are affected by that? 
Being able to live out one's principles with no concern for their effect on others really is a luxury. So is this true? Is it ethical for me to do anything that might require my children to reap some very dire consequence? Now, I'm not saying yes or no here, at least not yet. This is just an example of how things are not always black and white. There are many of us who struggled with the requirement by the military to get a vaccine. Struggled with it. And we had to determine... Do I feed my family? Is it a religious belief? What do I do? Those were questions I know those of you who were required to get it, I know you asked. Because you probably weren't, like me, convinced that it was going to save your life. (laughs) But yet we had to have those discussions. Because of the ambiguity, we need to find some anchors that will help us or else we'll simply devolve into a situational ethic where it's right now, it's okay this time, maybe not next time. Why did I get the, uh, why do I resist the COVID vaccine when I've gotten the flu shot every year? Or why did I resist the anthrax years ago? I don't know if you remember that whole situation when everybody was getting anthrax and people didn't want it then. Why do I say yes now? If we just waffle and go back and forth, it's just situational. We will let circumstances dictate our behavior and forfeit as Benjamin Martin called it, the luxury of principle. This is the inerrant danger of postmodernism. Everyone does that which is right in their own eyes. And of the three theological issues we have discussed in light of postmodernism, which we've talked about abortion, sexuality, and now this issue, this issue is, in my opinion, the most prevalent in our conservative churches. It's prevalent in our church. When it comes to discerning our civic responsibility and then also civil disobedience, we are running amok. Even in our churches with members who conflate Christianity with Americanism. Christians who have bought into an American gospel where being an American is its own type of divine election. Where the United States is the only country blessed by God And American exceptionalism has less to do with God's blessing on our land and more to do with our own sense of entitlement to his goodness. All this because we have bought into the postmodern philosophy that we supposedly despise. So let's establish the anchor, a biblical anchor that will aid in grounding us. The anchor we need to have is going back to this whole course, having a Christian worldview on citizenship. Citizenship is the relationship between an individual and a state with which the individual owes allegiance and is in turn entitled to certain rights and privileges. Or, as our country defines it on a U.S.gov website, here's how our nation defines citizenship. The un... I wrote a word and I don't know what I meant by that word. Thank you. I think you're right. The unique bond that unites people around civic ideals and a belief in the rights and freedoms guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution. The unique bond that unites people around civic ideals and a belief in the rights and freedoms guaranteed by the Constitution. It's a great definition of citizenship for us. This is going to be our perspective for this evening. 
U.S. citizens. Now, you might be here, or you're listening, and you're not a U.S. citizen. Now, I certainly do believe the principles we're discussing are applicable at any time to any citizen of any nation. But this evening, I'm specifically talking within the context of U.S. citizenship, and specifically our role as Christians within our republic. And this brings me back to the anchor, a Christian worldview of citizenship. What does that look like in our republic? There are three ways in which, our individual, in which all individuals relate to their country. The first relationship a citizen can have is really that of anarchy or anarchism. Anarchy comes from the Greek word anarchia, which means lack of a leader. It's the combination of the prefix an, a-n, which means without, and the root arkos, which means leader. So literally, without a leader. Now, anarchism is skeptical of any justification of authority and power, and it's usually grounded in moral claims that the importance of individual liberty often conceived as freedom from domination. Now, it really is the political theory that no individual should be coercively subjugated to any hierarchical power or authority. Now, particularly, this term applied to the hierarchy and power of government specifically. But you can have anarchy in anything. You can have an anarchy in religion where you say, well, I don't believe in a higher power. I am the higher power. You can have anarchy in all sorts of things. We have it in our home. Uh, I'm just kidding. We don't. You know, we just have kids running amok. Uh, but, uh, uh, but you can have anarchy in all sorts of things. But here tonight, we're going to specifically look at government. An anarchist believes it's not just limited government, it's no government. I ask, is anarchism compatible with the biblical worldview of the Christian's relationship to a government? Well, on one hand, you might be able to argue that, hey, man has a conscience, and the believer especially shouldn't need the government. Because why? The Christian is going to be led by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will determine his or her behavior. Well, that's a good theory. Where we could say, hey, I believe in, the, I believe in soul liberty. I believe in the priesthood of the believer. I, all I answer is to God. So if the entire world were Christian, we wouldn't need a government, right? Well, I guess that might work in theory, but if you espouse this view, you have a much higher opinion of my own flesh than I do. I think the Bible clearly teaches that we do need government to help us flourish as humans on this earth. Paul eloquently and precisely defined the role of government in Romans 13. Look at verses 3 and 4 of Romans 13. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. Verse 4. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is a minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Paul gives two purposes of government here. First, the purpose of government is they are a terror to evil works. This means they have a role in deterring wickedness. You break the law, the government is there to punish you. 
So the first role of government is deterrence. The government has a responsibility to discourage behavior that would terrorize its citizens. The second, per and that's, we see that in our Constitution. We see that in the preamble it says, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union, establish us, and then to ensure domestic tranquility, peace. That's the role of the government. It has a responsibility to discourage this behavior. The second though, purpose of government is judicial. The government is in the position to judge between those who do which is, that which is good and praise them for it and bear the sword against those who do evil and by bearing the sword they execute wrath upon them. So if for a Christian to argue for anarchy, even with the pretense of the spirit-led life, it does not seem to fit what Paul is teaching here in Romans. There is a purpose for government and citizens, especially Christian citizens who are to be subject to it because remember, Paul's writing this to Christians. He's telling them, be subject to the higher powers. So on the one end of the spectrum, you have anarchism. But then on the other end of the spectrum, you have nationalism. Now, I use this word purposefully, and I'll define it the way I'm using it, because it's very important that we do so. If anarchism is the rejection of government, nationalism is the other extreme of undiscriminating devotion to it. Most scholars would say that underlying, the underlying foundation of nationalism is the belief that humanity is divisible into mutually distinct, internally coherent cultural groups, defined by shared traits like language, they share religion, they share ethnicity and culture. And because of this, these groups should each have their own governments. That government should promote and protect a nation's cultural identity and that sovereign national groups provide meaning and purpose for human beings. Really, it's saying it's the biggest type of clique you can have, where you all come together with like languages and this is what forms a nation. Now, I actually don't disagree with this underlying concept of nationalism. In fact, if you went to Genesis chapter 11 and see that, you'll see that a unifying factor of the inhabitants of the earth at that time was that they shared what? A common language. And what did they do? They came together to build a tower to heaven. But they wanted to also, the Bible says, they wanted to make to themselves a name. They wanted a cultural identity. And do you remember what God said about this? He said, behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. In other words, as a single cultural identity with a common language and a common culture, there is nothing that impedes them from whatever they think up. I think we're almost back there. We have an international common language again. And there really is nothing that is, when we get all of our scientists and minds together, we think that we are invincible. We can conjure up anything. Have you been paying to, attention to the news over the last couple weeks? Not just the war that's going on, but we, and I say humanity, figured out how to take a pig's heart from a pig and put it into a person. And that person survived for a couple weeks. We're doing transplants from animals. Pull out your iPhone. 
You have so much technology in the palm of your hand. I really, I don't mean this arrogantly. There is really, it seems like there, the sky is the limit for humanity in what it can imagine. In other words, the implication is that when there is a con- not a common language, they lost their identity. And that's what God did. He confounded or confused their language and scattered them throughout the earth. When there was no more lo- longer a common language, they lost their identity. They broke off into similar, smaller cultures where they could communicate with each other. So the nation and nationalism is not wrong. In fact, I think it is a biblical understanding of how the world has been divided. I do think we need to resist any sort of global community or international order. We are not one world. We are, by divine purpose, divided into nations with different languages, cultures, and ethnicities. Where nationalism, though, runs, a f- runs foul is in the overinflated view of a nation. It becomes arrogant, prideful, unbiblical. We see it in American churches when we say, God blessed me to be an American. Well, that's true. Just as he blessed a Russian to be a Russian, a Ukrainian to be a Ukrainian, a Mexican to be a Mexican. The only one he didn't bless was Michiganders. That, that's, I had to throw that in. He also blessed the Mexican who dreams of becoming an American or the German who works for and is granted American citizenship. He's also blessed those expats around our world who have gone to other countries and work there, learning their language, our missionaries who are in the international community. An undiscriminating devotion to any nation is problematic. Let me share an example of how unbridled nationalism can cause even the Christians of a country to sell their soul. In 1933, Germany, they had just elected a new chancellor. And of course, you recall that the chancellor was the man named Adolf Hitler. In just a few short months of power, Hitler consolidated everything, taking control of all labor unions, abolishing state governments, and making the German military completely answerable to him. In all of this, the German clergy began to fear that their rights would be taken. And they trembled at the thought of the state invoking its power upon the church and thus producing another state-governed church, much like what the Protestant Reformation of only a few centuries prior had fervently endeavored to thwart. In an effort to subdue the fears of the ministers, Hitler invited Germany's clergy to the Reichstag in Berlin. And on May 23, 1933, the Reichstag bustled with excitement as hundreds of clergy members gathered in Berlin, anxiously waiting to hear if their tax-exempt status would be upheld, whether their freedom of speech would be hindered, and just how far this new chancellor would intervene in their affairs. But Hitler, in all his political savvy, soothed their anxiety by stating that the national government regards the two Christian confessions as factors essential to the soul of the German people. It will respect the contracts they have made with the various regions. It declares its determination to leave their rights intact. With a sigh of relief, the clergy gave their full support to Hitler. That is except for one minister who had been sitting toward the back of that great hall. This particular minister, Martin Niemuller by name, was a rather outspoken Lutheran clergyman who had come into the ministry later in life. 
He was a young man when, who had served gallantly as a U-boat commander in World War I, even earning the Iron Cross First Class, one of Germany's top military honors. You could not argue that Niemuller loved his nation. Niemuller made his way to the front of the hall to address Hitler and his fellow clergy. Hi, Hitler, Niemuller began. You tell us that we will not lose our contracts, nor will we lose our rights. That's correct, Hitler responded. I'm not concerned with the soul of the church, for that is the clergy's responsibility. Hi, Hitler, Niemuller retorted. We're not concerned with keeping the soul of the church either. For Jesus Christ has promised he will keep his church, and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. No, hi Hitler, we are not concerned with the soul of the church. We are concerned with the soul of Germany. Who is going to protect the soul of Germany? Now the hall was uneasy. The clergy feared the chancellor might go back on his promises. And slowly, the ministers began to back away, leaving Niemuller, Niemuller standing alone, face to face with the Fuhrer. As if muttering to himself, but still loud enough for all to hear, Hitler responded, My dear reverend, do not worry about the soul of Germany. You can leave that to me. That's exactly what Germany did. By the time Hitler was removed from office, over 12 years later, 11 million had been exterminated while the German clergy sat by and let the soul of one of Europe's greatest nations be protected by Hitler. Some have asked, how can the atrocities in Germany have happened? The answer, I think, is in part to the violation of scriptural principle found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. In the passage, Jesus is instructing his disciples on their influence on the culture in which he lived. And Jesus said, ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt hath lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You see, the atrocities in Germany happened because Christians quit being salt and light of the world and allowed unbridled nationalism to cloud their judgment. They forfeited their obligation to oversee the nation's soul and instead gave their support wholesale to a madman. So, unbridled nationalism, it's not a Christian worldview. Anarchism is not the Christian worldview. Our nation has warts. And we must own those warts. And when necessary, we preach against them and we repent from them. So how does the Christian relate to the state? That's what we'll talk about next week. We are going to change things up just a little. Instead of going into um, the topic that's in your syllabus titled... Um, uh, What's that? No, what's the very last? Yeah, what's, the, what's uh, no, go. No, 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 that's on your, I mean, in your syllabus. In your syllabus, there's a topic that we're not going to talk about, and it is identity politics. That's it. It came, finally came to me. Identity politics. If you want to hear about, about identity politics, I do encourage you to go back to the YouTube videos of our services back last spring when I talked about, um, uh, specifically about um, 
uh, <laughs> critical theory and critical race theory. That's where I really talk about. So what we're going to do is we're going to finish this part next week, and it won't take us very long. We only got a couple pages of notes left. We'll finish that, and we're going to go right into, as we finish that, to the second lecture, and it will start next week, and we're going to talk about how, social, how, how we as Christians theologically handle social media. And so that's what we're going to look at, uh, social media issues. And, and we're not really going to look at, you know, apps and stuff like that. What we're going to look at is how do we use social media to influence our thinking? Uh, and, uh, and, and we find that sometimes it, it dissuades us. Uh, this, it's not going to be a lecture on whether or not you send too many texts or not. Uh, or it's just going to be really on how do we allow social media to influence our theology. And I think you'll find it interesting uh, in what it does for us. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.